You know, being a vocational evangelist and traveling around preaching in a different place every week, needless to say, can be an adventure. You can't go into it with preconceived ideas and stereotype concepts. No two preachers, no two churches, no two areas are identical. And you simply have to trust the Lord for flexibility in the Spirit, and you simply have to roll with the punches and take what you have to work with. I've had a lot of unusual experiences these last uh, 15 years that I've been traveling across America, privileged to preach in a different place every week. There's some people trying to get me to write a book about that, but to be honest with you, I'm not really sure that that's what the Lord wants. I'm making it a matter of prayer. But let me tell you about one experience I had a few years ago. I was invited to do a four-day crusade at the First Baptist Church of Surfside Beach, South Carolina. Now, Brother Fred and I are natives of South Carolina. You may not know much about South Carolina geography, but Surfside Beach is 10 miles south of Myrtle Beach. And I'd helped their pastor when he was pastoring the First Baptist Church of Bamberg, South Carolina. And we had so many people saved down at Bamberg that when he moved to Surfside, he invited me to come and do his first revival. So on Sunday morning, they take me down here to the front row, and they sit me next to the pastor's 10-year-old son, Thomas, who, believe me, is all boy in every manner of speaking. Thomas looks up at me, he said, Preacher, he said, you remember the last time you preached for my daddy? He said, you sat by me on the front row then. I said, man, Thomas, I'm impressed, son. You have a great memory. He said, well, do you also remember that you gave me a dollar bill to be still and be quiet while you were preaching? <laughs> and I said, Thomas, you've really rattled my cage now. I do remember that, but I'd forgotten that. Well, he looked up at me, and his mother was sitting right behind us, and she nearly died when he made this next statement. He said, well, listen, preach, it's going to cost you five today. <laughs> now, so help me, that's a direct quote. I said, well, Thomas, I'll cut a little deal with you, son. I said, if you listen attentively to what I have to say, and at lunch today with your mother and father, if you can answer five questions about the message, man, I'll give you the five bucks. It'll be worth it to me. I want to tell you, Pastor, he sat up on the edge of that seat, had his Bible open, was literally hanging intently on every word that I said. So at lunch that day, I posed the five questions to him. Now, needless to say, you would not have to have been a rocket scientist nor even a noted Bible scholar to answer the questions, but you would have to have been listening to what I said. Man, he spat the answers back to me just like that. He said, all right, preacher, where's my money? You owe me. I said, you're absolutely right, Thomas, I do, but I don't like to carry money with me on Sunday. But I have some personal petty cash in the back of the CD pouch. If you walk out to my car with me, son, I'll pay you off. Well, on the way, the car, he looks up at me, he says, now listen, preacher, since I did so well, we need to renegotiate. <laughs> he said, how about you giving me 10 instead of 5? Typical preacher's kid, Herb, that's what he was. Later on that same year, I was invited to do a revival at the First Baptist Church of Myrtle Beach. Now, Brother Fred and I went to Myrtle Beach all of our life and probably didn't attend very much church and never dreamed I'd go back there to preach someday. They hadn't had a revival there in 38 years. They didn't know what to expect, and neither did I. But it's amazing how they packed that building out every night and the number of people who received Christ as their Savior. He comes to the meeting one night with his dad, and they come in the door over here, and I'm seated in about the same place. He rushes over there and sits down next to me. He said, hey, preacher, how you doing? I said, I'm doing fine, Thomas. How are you doing? He said, good. He said, now listen, preacher, if I'm good and I listen well tonight, will you give me $20? I mean, his ante's going up every time I see the boy. I said, son, if you don't sit still and be quiet while I'm preaching, I'll give your daddy $20 to spank you. That's what I'll do. <laughs> well, listen to me today. I can't pay you to listen to what I have to say, but I am convinced that I do have a word from the Lord. So with that in mind, would you take your Bibles and would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 
and chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and in a moment we're going to begin reading in verse 17. I'm speaking this morning, and I cannot praise the Lord enough and express my appreciation for the fact that the Holy Spirit led Brother Ed and the choir and the musicians and the instrumentalists to bring all of the music about the cross. Because I'm preaching on this subject, the power of the cross. Back in January, I was invited to do a one-day revival in a church over in Villa Rica, Georgia. Before I was to be there on Sunday, along about Thursday, their pastor called me on the phone. He said, now, Brother Lynn, I know that you've not been a pastor in a long time, but Sunday is our regularly scheduled time for us to observe the Lord's Supper. Our people do not want to cancel it. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to serve the Lord's Supper with me to our people and to our deacons. I said, Pastor, I'm honored that you would invite me to do that. There are some things that I miss about pastoring. I usually get over them pretty quick, but there are some things I miss about pastoring, and one of them is serving the Lord's Supper. So we went there that day, and they had a song service much like yours. And the Holy Spirit really gripped my heart. And I was prepared to preach on something else and said, turn to this passage, and I want you to bring a message on the power of the cross. Since that day, I've asked the Lord to fine-tune it, to hone it, to lead me to develop it more. And today, I'm preaching on the power of the cross. Now, I want you to know something about the Scripture that we're reading today. Let me give you just a little bit of backdrop or background for it, because it will prop up the message. Corinth was the most important city in Greece... During Paul's day, it was a bustling hub of worldwide commerce, degraded culture, and idolatrous religion. The Bible says that Paul founded a church there, and two of the 13 letters that he penned in the New Testament, he addressed them to the church of God at Corinth. 1 Corinthians reveals the problems, the pressures, and the struggles of a church that was called out of a pagan society. Man, if you could only read how terribly wicked these Corinthians were before they got gloriously saved, it would literally blow you away. And Paul shows up in Corinth with a revolutionary message about the greatest revolutionary that ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ, who brings about a revolution of redemption in our heart. Because the word revolution means change. And I'm telling you, when Jesus Christ comes into a person's life and he takes over a person's life, a change takes place. If there's been no change, then there's been no conversion. And if there's been no conversion, there can be no commitment to Jesus Christ. So they got gloriously saved, but even though they were gloriously saved and transformed, they brought a lot of the old hang-ups and problems and issues and struggles from the old life with them into the church. So he addresses a variety of problems in the lifestyle of the Corinthian believers. He addresses factions. They became divided among themselves, developed little splinter groups because they began to worship men rather than to worship God. He addresses lawsuits. They begin to sue each other. He addresses immorality that they still had in their life. He addresses questionable practices. He addresses abuses of the Lord's Supper. Some of them were getting drunk and committing gluttony at the Lord's Supper table. And he addresses spiritual gifts, something that all of us were given upon our conversion to Christ, that God wants to use us to help reach the world for Christ and to edify his church. He not only gives them words of discipline, but he shares words of counsel in answer to the questions that had been raised by a lot of the Corinthian believers. Now, with that in mind, you began reading with me in verse 17, if you will. For Christ did not send me to baptize, 
but to preach the gospel. He's not minimizing baptism. He just says that's not my primary function. My primary function is to preach the gospel. It's much like my ministry today. I'm no longer a pastor. I believe the highest calling on a man's life is to be a pastor. I think that God is able to really trust a man with a flock of believers to feed them and nurture them and lead them. I do not have a pastor's heart now. I have the heart of an evangelist. My job is to go and share the good news, to help people to get saved, to help Christians to go on with God. And I have to leave them to the care of the pastor and of the local church. He says, not with wisdom of words, and Paul certainly could have used wisdom of words because he was a high intellectual of his day. Why? Lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Do you realize to many people who are lost, if they were to come in here today and see the way we're worshiping, it would not make a lot of sense to them. It would be ridiculously foolish and silly to them. The reason for that is they do not have a convicted conscience controlled by God's Holy Spirit that we receive once we're born again and birthed into God's forever family through the Holy Spirit. They do not have a spiritual antenna with which they can receive spiritual things. Now, once they get saved, it's no longer ridiculous or foolish or silly to them. But we need to remember that and remember where they're coming from. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and he quotes here now, Isaiah 29 and verse 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. We won't ever live a time before Jesus comes back that there will not be men of God who will be standing up and preaching the cross and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Jews require a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That is a loaded statement. Please do not flippantly gloss over that. And I'll come back and explain that in a few moments. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now before we read verses 26 through 31, I want to tell you a little story. It's hard to believe, but it'll be 40 years ago next summer, when God brought us to Mobile to serve with Brother Fred at the Cottage Hill Baptist Church. I came in June. Ed Keyes came at the same time, and Bob Rival, a dear friend of ours, came along shortly after that. One day, about six months later, Brother Fred called me on the intercom in the office and said, we're going to Huntsville, Alabama for a couple of days, and we're going to the Alabama Pastors Conference. So we drove to Huntsville one Monday. I'll never forget this. And we pulled up in front of the First Baptist Church of Huntsville, Alabama, and I thought it was the strangest architecture for a Baptist church that I'd ever seen. It didn't even look like a church. It looked like a building out of the Gothic or Middle Ages. I mean, I'd never seen an architecture like that. That night, we went to the service. There were over 3,300 Baptist preachers across Alabama who were present there that night. A man stood up to speak that night of whom I'd never heard. I'd never seen him. I knew nothing about him. I had no idea who he was. Brother Fred had to tell me who he was. He had the deepest, most resonant voice I've ever heard a public speaker 
or a preacher have. I remember saying to brother friend, God's voice must sound something like that. Man, I've never heard a man with a voice like that. That man's name was Adrian Rogers. I never dreamed when I saw him for that first time. And later on that night when brother Fred introduced me to him, that seven years later, by his recommendation, I would go to pastor the same church in the state of Florida that he had pastored before he went to Bellevue in Memphis. I'll never forget that night, Adrian stood up and announced to us he was going to preach on God's Hall of Faith. I immediately flipped in my Bible over to Hebrews chapter 11. He did not go to Hebrews chapter 11. He had us to turn to this passage, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. And then he looked out at 3,300 Baptist preachers from across Alabama and said, How many of you were selected outstanding young men of America, are most likely to succeed, or any other senior superlative in your high school, your college, or your seminary graduating class? Well, you know how some preachers are. Some of them can strut more sitting down than some people can, walking straight up. Boy, they began to raise their hands and wave at him. One guy sitting in front of Brother Fred and me waved both hands at him. Well, Adrian Rogers let him do that for about 30 seconds. And then he looked at him and said, well, I'm not talking to you. He said, God may be able to use you. I don't know. But if he does, you'll have to lay all of that in the dust. You'll have to die to all of that. And understand that none of that qualifies you to serve God. And then he read to us how God takes the simple, weak, base, despised things of this world and uses them to confound the mighty, the wise, the noble, and the strong. Have you ever noticed in the spiritual realm how some people seem to do more with less than the people that seem to have more? Have you ever wondered why that's true? Usually it's because they're less is more committed to God than the more that some people have to have. And some people rely more on what they have, not realizing that God gave it to them instead of being totally dependent upon God. When it comes to serving the Lord, it's not ability that counts. It's availability and dependability. How available are you and I to God, and how much are we going to depend upon Him to do in and through us exactly what He wants to do? I am amazed how God takes ordinary people and does extraordinary things through them. How God takes unassuming people, people that you and I would never pick to be used, and how He does unbelievable things through them. Now you pick up the reading with me again, with that in mind, in verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in His presence. See, God's not going to share His glory with anyone else, or anything else, especially anything of the flesh. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness. Righteousness means rightness with God, or the rightness of God. You can't be right with God apart from His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And sanctification, that means to be set apart. We were not only saved from sin and saved from hell, we were set apart unto God to be used of Him to touch and impact the world for Christ. And redemption, that means to buy back. God buys us back to Himself through the price that Jesus Christ paid on Calvary's cross. That as it is written, and He quotes here now Jeremiah 9, 23, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 
I've been privileged to go to the Holy Land on three separate occasions. If you've ever been on a Holy Land tour, you know that when you get over to Jerusalem, they take you to three separate places and tell you that this is where three distinct groups say that Jesus was buried. One is where the Jews say he was buried. One is where the Muslims say he was buried. And one is where the Christians traditionally believe that he was buried. On all three tours of the Holy Land, I've been with large groups of people. And some of them would almost have a spell or almost get sick trying to figure out which one of the three that it really was. To be honest with you, that really didn't bother me. And I don't mean to be flippant about it because I do have some convictions about which one it was. But it really didn't bother me because I noticed the same thing was true about all three of them. Glory to God, all three of them were empty. He was gone. He was not there. And that's all that really matters. He is risen. He's living. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-seeing, ever-present. Praise His holy name that He is. But I tell you what did disturb me, what really upset me, at the foot of Gordon's Calvary, The spot where we believe that Jesus traditionally died on the cross. Today there sits a Greyhound bus terminal with the stench and the odor that goes with a Greyhound bus terminal. I remember the first time I saw that, I thought to myself, the audacity of these people to put a Greyhound bus terminal with that stench and that odor at the foot of the most sacred spot in all the world where the most significant thing in history actually took place. And I really wanted to express it to someone when the Holy Spirit restrained me and said, Wait a minute, son. That's really the way it was the day that my only begotten son died here. Most of the people were moving about in the hustle and bustle of the day, going about their normal activities, their normal routines, not even pausing to stop and look or think about the significance of what was taking place on the top of that hill that day. Let me ask you a question. If you were to walk out of here today and go out into the parking lot and someone from the press were to approach you or maybe an innocent bystander or maybe someone who is really curious and seeking, they came up to you and asked you, tell me in your own words, just why did Jesus Christ die on the cross? How would you answer that question? Because your response to that question would determine whether or not you fully understand the significance of what really happened on that lonely hill just outside the city walls of Jerusalem on that day a long time ago. I want to share with you the four simple basic reasons that Jesus Christ died on the cross. You might just want to jot them down while we go and keep them for future reference or future posterity. Or you may be asked that question one day and you'll be fully equipped and prepared to answer it. Reason number one that Jesus Christ died on the cross was out of obedience to our holy heavenly Father and out of obedience to the perfect will of God. From the time that man sinned in the Garden of Eden, God began to weave a scarlet thread of redemption all the way through the Bible and all the way through history centered upon and focused upon the supreme sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on Calvary's cross. You see, the Lord Jesus saw us down here in our sinful state, knowing that we needed a Savior, we needed a Messiah, we needed a Redeemer. And temporarily he set aside the external features of being God and of his godliness. And he came to earth, God incarnate, God in the flesh, God come to live as a man, Emmanuel, God with us. And he voluntarily, willingly went to the cross obedient to God. 
The Bible says he was an obedient servant even unto death. I love the fact that he did it voluntarily and willingly. Jesus said in John 10, 17 and 18, No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. No man has the power to take it from me, and no man can take it up again. I have that power because it was given to me by my Father in heaven. The question always arises, well, just who killed Jesus? Some ask, was it the Jews? Do you remember a few years ago when Mel Gibson came out with this film? On the crucifixion of Christ. And by the way, I'm convinced it's the most authentic thing that Hollywood has ever done. On the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's a shame that later on he negated his testimony by his lifestyle. But nevertheless, when he came out with that, the Jewish people really rose up in rebellion against Mel Gibson. And wanted to sue him. Because they said that he was accusing them of murdering Jesus. People say, was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Was it us? There's a great element of truth in all of that. But I want to tell you, Jesus Christ went to that cross because it was the perfect will of God. And he was the only one that could fulfill God's perfect plan of redemption. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe because you and I owed a debt that we could not pay. And that's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he that is God the Father made him that is God the Son, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Think about it, my friend. When Jesus went to the cross, it was heaven's best being given for earth's worst. It was heaven's most perfect being given for earth's most sinful. It was heaven's most innocent being given for earth's most guilty. Do you remember just hours before Jesus went to the cross? He went to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples to pray. They were extremely tired and weary. The disciples yielded and succumbed to temptation. They fell asleep. The Bible says Jesus went on just a little farther. And he knelt to pray. He knelt by some rocks. And the Bible says that he agonized so severely in prayer that sweat drops of blood began to pour from his brow. We're told by Josephus, the ancient first century Christian historian, that those sweat drops of blood were about the size of a nickel in our modern day currency. Can you imagine a man agonizing that severely in prayer? And he began to pray and God revealed to him a cup. He showed him the cup of death. He actually showed Jesus everything he was going to have to go through on the cross if he followed through in obedience to do it. And from his humanity, strictly from his humanity, not his divinity, Jesus said literally, Father, if there's any other way for mankind to be saved other than by going to the cross, I pray that you let this cup of death pass from me. God revealed to Jesus that there was no other way. And then he looked back toward heaven and prayed, screaming almost, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Praise his holy name. The Lord Jesus went to the cross voluntarily, willingly, obediently to the perfect will to fulfill the perfect plan of redemption of Almighty, Holy God. The second reason Jesus died on the cross was out of His love for mankind. The Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, that He lay down His life for His friends. There's never been a greater love than the love that prompted Jesus to go to that cross and the love that nailed him to that cross. And I want to tell you something today that if you don't remember another thing I say, 
I want you to remember this and take it away with you, if you will. Because if people can ever grasp this, it would literally change their life. He knows everything there is to know about you. And yet that does not alter or change how he feels about you and me. He loves us anyway. And here's what we need to grasp. God loves you and me unconditionally. Did you know I'd been programmed for a long time? I'd even been preaching. I don't blame this on anyone but myself. But I'd been programmed or I'd programmed myself to believe that God only loved me when I did well, when I did right, when I was successful, and when I was on top. About 16 years ago when I crashed and almost bottomed out, here's what God showed me. There's nothing good, positive, and spiritual that you'll ever do that will cause God to love you any more than He already does. And likewise, if you turn that coin over, there's not even anything bad, evil, wicked, and sinful that you'll ever do that will cause God to love you any less than He already does. God loves you unconditionally. My friend, He loves you as though you're the only person in all the world that He has to love. In fact, if you'd been the only person in all the world that needed for Jesus to come and do all that He did, He would have done it just for you. You matter to God. You are very important to God. He didn't make any junk when He made you, and praise God, He won't make any junk when He remakes you and bursts you into His forever family, making you one of His blood-bought, born-again children in Jesus Christ. The cross of our Savior is a tree of life rooted in His love for us from which you and I can never be separated. My friend, even if you feel that no one else loves you, no one else cares whether you breathe or die, I want to tell you that God loves you. Jesus Christ died for you, and He loves you so much, He has a will, purpose, and plan for your life, ready to put it into operation if you'll only reach out to Him in faith and give Him your life. The third reason Jesus died on the cross was to provide a way for us back to God. You see, God never sent anybody to heaven. He just made a way to heaven. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. If you read John 14, 6 in the original language in which it was written, Jesus said literally, I am the true and living way. No man knows God other than through me. Now, folks, I travel around and the Lord lets me preach in a lot of places. But did you know it's no longer politically correct in America to preach what I'm preaching to you this morning? They say that we're narrow-minded, we're bigoted, we're prejudiced. Well, all I can tell you is the Bible is my basis and my authority. And according to the Bible, you cannot be saved, know God, and go to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. You either be saved, know God, and go to heaven through Jesus Christ, or you won't be saved, know God, and go to heaven. At all. That's why the Bible says in Acts 4.12, Neither is there any other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Save the name. Jesus Christ. God never sent anybody to hell. People condemn themselves to hell by failure to repent of their sins, believe what Christ has done for them, and receive Him into their life because they extend to Him that personal invitation to be their Savior and to be their Lord. You see, when Jesus Christ went to the cross for us, I heard this word all my life and never knew what it meant. They say it was his vicarious atonement. You know what that word vicarious means? It sounds like a big, fancy $5 word. I tell you what it means. It just simply means that Jesus became our substitute. He died in our place. He died the death that you and I really deserve 
to die. And he went through all of that so that you and I would not have to go through anything like that in order to become one of his children. He died in our place as our substitute, dying the death that you and I really deserve to die. And when he did, he took all of the sins of the world upon himself. And by the way, he died for everybody. He didn't die for just a select few. He died for everybody in the entire world on the cross. The Bible says he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Again, propitiation is a big word over there in 1 John. You know what it means? It means that Jesus is the only one that met God's demand for righteous, sinless perfection. You see, a sinful man couldn't take all the sins of the world upon himself. It took a sinless man to do that. And Jesus Christ is the only perfect, spotless, stainless, sinless man that ever lived. Therefore, he's the only one qualified to be our sin bearer and to take all of the sins of the world upon himself. And his sacrifice on the cross is the only one accepted by the Father over in the glory to atone for our sins. And here's the wonderful thing. He not only died as our substitute in our place. He not only took all of our sins upon himself, but he nailed our sin nature to the cross with him as well. You see, sins are just the byproduct of the sin. And when the Bible uses sin in the singular, it's not talking about our overt acts or our acts of disobedience. It's talking about our sin nature that we all inherited from Adam. Think about it. You and I didn't have to go to school to learn how to sin. We didn't have to have training courses and be trained to know how to sin. We sinned naturally. Why? Because we were born with a sin nature that we inherited from Adam that makes us prone to sin. Now, here's the thing about it. You can't ever get rid of that sin nature. It cannot be eradicated. It cannot be improved. You can't ever get rid of it. And if that's all there was to it, it'd be bad news. But here's the good news. When you get saved, gloriously born again, born from above, born of the Spirit of God, you get a new heavenly nature from God, controlled by Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. That means that every Christian has two natures inside of them. And every day of our lives, we've got a civil war going on inside of us because both of those two natures want to control and dominate us. And you and I decide which of the two we're going to allow to be in control. Either the old sin nature controlled by the world, the flesh, and the devil, or the new heavenly nature controlled by Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. The Bible speaks about it in Galatians 5, 17, when it says, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do what ye would. But oh, when we're ready to die to sin, die to self, assign it to the cross, praising God that when Jesus died on the cross, he not only took our sins on himself, but he nailed our sin nature to the cross with him. And then we can agree with Romans six eleven. We reckon ourselves indeed to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Victory begins to come into our life. Colossians 3 says mortify. It's the word from which we get our English word mortician. It means to put to death. Mortify the deeds of the body and the lust of the flesh thereof. This is what Paul meant in Galatians 2.20. When he said, for I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. And who gave himself for me. Oh, listen to me, friend. What Jesus did on the cross, when I read you that statement, but we preach Christ crucified, you know what that means? We believe that what he did on the cross was an accomplished, finished, 
completed work. There was nothing to be added to it, nothing to be taken away from it. There was nothing that anybody could say or do to alter it or to change it. Nothing else needed to be done. Everything that God intended to be done to provide salvation, redemption, righteousness, and sanctification for us had indeed been done. And His sacrifice is the only sacrifice that God accepts to take care of the sin problem of the entire world. Here's the fourth and final reason Jesus died on the cross. And I really want to zero in here for a few moments, so please stick with me. Jesus died on the cross to defeat the devil and to give us victory over the devil. Now I know because Brother Fred preaches and teaches to you things that you need to hear. But my friend, don't you ever believe that the devil is a myth or a figment of our imagination or a cartoon character or a cartoon caricature, or something we preachers have made up in order to scare you into doing what God really wants you to do. Satan is alive. Satan is real. Satan is active. Satan is powerful. He's stronger than you and me. You and I are weak. Satan is strong. But praise God, Jesus is stronger. And because of that, we can walk in victory and have victory in every circumstance we face every single day. Of our lives. Satan is out to destroy the kingdom of God and destroy anything and everything that is of God. But I'm thrilled that even though his purpose is to destroy, I'm thrilled to be able to report to you today he was, is, and shall always be a defeated, conquered foe. Jesus defeated him on the cross and through the resurrection. We're not working to victory way off out there in the future in some general abstract way. We're working from victory that's already been won for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the victor and Satan and his demons and his evil spirits and all the forces of wickedness and hell. They fall victim to the victor and the victory that we have in Jesus. All we have to do is claim and appropriate that victory, walk in that victory, exercise that victory, pray through that victory, and absolutely obey God in what He told us to do in the Word. And I tell you, I'm going more places today where people have no idea what's happening. They have no idea who's really attacking them and harassing them, trying to tear up their life, tear up their marriage, their home, their family, their church, attack preachers, and put the people that are really seeking to walk intimately with God under severe attack. A lot of them have been told by this younger generation that it's just their lot in life. It's their cross to bear. And man, they just have to tolerate it and put up with it. I'm here today to tell you, my friend, you don't have to continue to get beat up by the enemy. You don't have to tolerate it. You don't have to put up with it. Jesus has already taken care of it. He's already given us the victory. And it's time that we claimed and appropriated that victory and quit living like spiritual paupers and quit giving in to the enemy and took our stand against him and claimed our victory over him through the lordship of jesus christ you say well just how did the devil get started brother lynn well he was the praise and worship leader in heaven and he wasn't content with that he wanted to be equal with god god gave him every opportunity to repent and he refused to do it you read all about it in isaiah chapter 14 and ezekiel chapter 28 so god expelled him he removed him from heaven when he did one third of all the angels went with him they were dismissed as angels. They landed as demons, evil spirits, wicked spirits. In the place that God had assigned to him and his demons, that place 
called hell. That's why the Bible says over in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against principalities, against the rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Those are demonic forces that have been assigned to nations, assigned to governments, assigned to religion, assigned to certain people that are going to be in prominent positions of leadership all over the world. That's why the Bible also says in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God. And that armor is patterned after the armor of a Roman soldier, and there are no provisions for the back of the body. All of it's for the front of the body, which means we are not to flee or cowardly run away or bow down to the enemy. We're never to turn our back. We're to move ahead under the banner of the cross, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, through the blood of Christ, and through the leadership of God's Holy Spirit. Did you know that if a Roman soldier ever turned his back in battle, and he began to flee from his enemy, his commanding officer had the right to take a bow and arrow and shoot him in the back, or throw a spear into his back. That's why he says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles means methods. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the methods of the devil. Now, the Lord Jesus himself set the example for us. Do you remember over in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, as he was preparing for his public ministry, Jesus went away to pray and fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And out in the wilderness, he came face to face, one-on-one, with the devil himself. And the devil tried to attack him and harass him and tempt him the same way that he does you and me today with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. First of all, he tried to attack him physically. He said, Jesus, I know that you've been praying and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I know you're hungry. That means it's time for you to come off the fast. Therefore, why don't you just turn that rock into bread? Jesus could have looked at it. He could have spoken to it. He could have touched it, and that would have happened easily. But he did not verbally, orally, out loud, and with the Word of God. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Satan was defeated, but he did not give up. He came back this time, and he not only attacked him physically this time, he attacked him mentally. He took him to the pinnacle of the temple. That's 300 feet in the air. And said, if you're the son of God, hurl yourself down. You won't be injured or break any bones. You'll land on your feet. You'll be fine. Jesus could have called one angel. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have called a whole legion of angels. But again, he answered him verbally, orally, out loud, and with the word of God, and said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt, The Lord thy God. Satan had been defeated twice, but he came back the third time. And this time he had the unmitigated audacity, the gall, to literally say to Jesus, if you'll bow down to my feet, kiss my feet and worship me, I'll give you all the nations. I'll give you the world. Wherever God the idea was his world to give, I'll never know. You say, well, no, wait a minute, Brother Lynn. He's the prince of the air. That's just the name God gave him. Wait a minute, Brother Lynn. He's the prince of this world. That means he's the prince of people that are not saved and are not Christian. Well, now, wait a minute, Brother Lynn. He's the prince. Yeah, he's the prince, but bless God, he ain't the king. The prince is always in subject to the king. Amen? So Jesus answered him this time verbally or out loud and with the word of God. It is written, we will worship the Lord our God, and him only shall we serve. Satan's whipped. He's defeated. He knows that. You say, well, Brother Lynn, if he knows that, why is he creating so much havoc and so much disturbance? Why is he running to and fro all over the earth? Well, he knows that his time is coming. He knows that when Jesus comes back the second time, he's going to be cast into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. Then he's going to be released momentarily. 
and able to move to and fro. And then he's going to stand before the great white throne judgment. He and the false prophet and the Antichrist and the anti-Holy Spirit. And man, when all that happens, they're going to be cast along with all the lost people that never got saved into the lake of fire. But before that happens, he's going to try to disturb and destroy and disrupt as much as he possibly can. I'd illustrate for you like this. When I was a boy, I grew up on a textile mill village in Greenville, South Carolina. I didn't grow up in the country and I didn't grow up in the city. I was kind of in between. But every summer, they would send me up to my paternal great-grandmothers in Asheville, North Carolina. Now, their name was McTindall. They were full-blooded Irish. They had a large farm in Asheville, North Carolina. One afternoon, in the late afternoon, Mom McTindall, who was a little lady about that tall, weighed about 80 pounds, said, Lynn, I want you to go out back and wring a chicken's neck and bring me that chicken to cook for supper. I said, you want me to do what, Mom? She said, I want you to go wring that chicken's neck. Well, I'd never done that. I didn't know how to go about it. But I, I, for some reason, I was afraid to tell her. So I went out back, and I picked out a, a rooster that seemed real cocky to me. And I tell you, I chased that bird all over that barnyard for about 45 minutes. I dove. I tried to trap it. I tried to step on it. I tried to lay down on it. I did everything I could, and I couldn't catch that bird. Finally, I went back into her, and I'm just dripping with perspiration. I said, Ma, I, I, I can't catch that chicken. She said, you've never done that, have you? And I said, no, ma'am. She said, well, come with me, and I'll show you how to do it. Well, now remember, she's only about that tall and weighed about 80 pounds. In one sweeping motion, she went to that back screen door, pushed it open with her left hand, and here comes that same chicken walking right down by the back door. And I mean, that chicken was strutting. I could just see that chicken looking at me and saying, you never could get me. When all of a sudden, with one sweep of her right hand, she grabbed that chicken, jerked that chicken's neck, snapped its neck, pulled that chicken's head off. And when it did, that chicken hit that ground and went running all over that barnyard. I remember watching that chicken run and thinking to myself, there goes my supper, running all over that barnyard right now. And then in a minute, that chicken just came to an abrupt stop and just fell over dead. Let me tell you something today. He might be running to and fro. He might be having a lot of activity going. But I want to tell you, praise God, Jesus has already plucked the devil's neck. He's already put his foot and put him under his, his heel. I'm telling you, he's defeated. And one day he's going to come to an abrupt halt and it'll all be over. It's kind of like in college, they'd make us read novels. Now, if you teach school here today, I, I take my hat off to you. If you teach any kind of school, they ought to give you combat pay for doing it. Now, bless God, that's the way I feel. But you ever notice when you went to school, some teachers, they'd give you so much work, it's almost like they felt like their class was the only one you had. And they'd give you these novels to read, four, five, six hundred pages. Who had time to read that and do all your other schoolwork? So I'd usually get the club notes or the cliff notes, and I'd find out what it was about. One day the Lord convicted me and said, no, you're going to read that novel. So I started reading the novel. I got over here on page 249, and from page 1 to page 249, the bad guy, the villain, he's getting the upper hand. I mean, it looked like he, he's really going to just stomp the good guy in the ground. And I, I, I was being to get depressed. Well, I couldn't stand it. I parked my place in page 249, and I went over to page 543. And when I got over there, the, the bad guy went down. He bit the dust. And the good guy won, and it turned out wonderful. Bless God, I went back to page 249. I started reading it again. I started talking to the bad guy. I said, oh, boy, you've got the upper hand now. It looks like you're winning. But I've been over to page 543, baby, and when you get over there, you're going down. You're going to bite the dust. <laughs> listen to me. Listen, please. There's no devil on the first page of your Bible. And praise God, there's no devil on the last page of your Bible. If we can win in the end, glory to God, we can win all along the way. Walk in the victory of Jesus. When the devil gets after you and gets after your marriage, your home, your family, your job, your church, whatever you're involved in, your Bible study, whatever it is, you do what Jesus did. You come against him verbally, orally, out loud. He can't read your mind. He can plant thoughts there, but he can't read your mind. 
He can't possess a believer. He can depress and oppress and suppress a believer, but he can't. Jesus and demons not going to live in the same place at the same time. When one comes in, the other one's going out. But listen to me carefully, if you will. When it happens, you don't have to put up with it and tolerate it. Wherever you are, stop. Get off alone or just do it publicly. Some people need to hear you do it. Verbally, orally, with the Word of God. Come against the devil. Say, Satan, I know what you're doing. I recognize this is you. All types of weird, uncanny, bizarre things are happening. And I know that you are responsible for that. But you listen to me. I'm not praying to you, Satan. I'm addressing you. I'm speaking to you. A lady wrote a book recently and said that we don't have the authority to speak to the devil. We don't get involved in a conversation with him. I don't get involved in a conversation with him, but through the authority of Jesus, I have the right to speak to him and tell him where to go and tell him what to do. So this is all you have to do. Satan, listen to me. In the name, the power, the authority, and through the blood of Jesus Christ, I refuse you, rebuke you, renounce you, reject you, bind you, and demand that you flee. You have no right in any of these people, places, or things. You be gone. Jesus is Lord. And then you take the Word of God and hurl it into His face. Hurl those three scriptures that Jesus quoted. I'll give you some more ammunition to throw right into His face. Here's what the Bible says in 1 John 3, 8. For the Son of Man came to earth for the distinct purpose to destroy the works of the devil. First John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who lives within us than he who is in the world. First John 5, 4 says, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Revelation 12, 11 says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and through their personal testimony. Ephesians 4, 27 says, Give no place to the devil. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. First Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walketh about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, to whom steadfast resist in the faith. Hebrews 2, 14 says that through death he might gain victory over him that has the power unto death. Even the devil. Colossians 2.15 says, Having spoiled all powers and principalities, he's made an open show and tragedy of them. Therefore, resist in the faith. Friend, if we don't, we, we allow him to come in and set up strongholds in our lives and set up strongholds in our families and our homes, strongholds in our churches. Brother Fred, it is amazing how many places I go to preach and it breaks my heart because I see how the devil set up strongholds in churches and people don't know how to tear them down. All you got to do is read 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imagination and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought of our mind to the obedience of Jesus Christ, having a readiness to avenge all disobedience in order that our obedience might be fulfilled. You know what those strongholds are? They can set up in an individual life, or they can set up corporately. Hate, anger, jealousy, bitterness, pride, Gossip, unforgiveness, defensiveness, bearing false witness against your neighbor. Of course, they can set themselves up through alcohol or drugs or the misuse and abuse of the beautiful God-given gift of sex. I tell you today, friend, I see too many people just getting beaten up by the enemy. Too many people just being defeated. Too many people that don't understand and know about the victory in Jesus. And I wish we could get this message out to as many people as we possibly could. I'd been in evangelism about a year, and I was invited to Indianapolis, Indiana, to preach for a man that formerly pastored in Atlanta. 
He called me before I got there and said, Brother Lynn said, they're having a symposium on the CBS network television affiliate here in Indianapolis. They've asked seven ministers from seven different churches to be on that, and they've invited us to come and participate. He said, it's going to happen while you're here for the crusade. He said, would you be willing to serve on that symposium? I said, Pastor, do you want me to do that? He said, I sure do. He said, I believe it would give great exposure to our church, great exposure to the revival. It would give you a ministry exposure. I said, well, preacher, I'm not looking for exposure. I preached on television before and did it for a long time, but if it'll help you and help the church, I'm willing to do that. Well, I've been to college and seminary. I thought I knew what a symposium was. It's a panel discussion. They had seven ministers on this panel. And of the seven ministers, I was the only one of the seven that believed that the Bible is the divinely inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. I was the only one of the seven that believed that Jesus was born supernaturally, miraculously of a virgin. I was the only one of the seven that believed that His death on the cross is the only means to atone for our sins. I was the only one of the seven that believed that he was literally, visibly, bodily, emily coming back one day again real soon. And so I was the token conservative. They didn't mean for me to say anything. And for 25 minutes, it was as though I wasn't even present with them. They carried on a conversation and talked about everything liberal and radical you can imagine and totally ignored me. But to show you how God works. Now, I didn't get the final word. God did. But to show you how God works, with five minutes to go in the program, This little effeminate minister sitting next to me with his collar on backwards. I know, I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) It's better than some things I could have said about him, but I I won't do that. He turned to me and very sarcastically said, Brother Turner, he said, you're one of those conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist preachers from the South, aren't you? I said, yes, sir. I sure am, and I want to thank you for the compliment, and I want to thank you for the best description of my ministry anybody's ever given it. He said, I didn't mean that as a compliment. I said, no kidding. I didn't think you did. He said, I want to ask you another question. This is the way he said it. He said, you believe that the blood, that's the way he said it, and he made a face, the blood of Jesus is the only means of atoning for our sins, don't you? I said, yes, sir, I sure do. He said, I don't believe that. I said, no kidding. He said, no, I don't. He said, tell me why you believe it. I said, well, number one, the Bible teaches it. And number two, it's become a reality in my own life. He did something inside of me no one else has ever done, and I've never met anybody like Jesus. He said, well, I just want to tell you and all those other people that believe like you do that I don't believe that the blood of Jesus has any more atoning and eternal significance to it than the blood of a chicken you'd kill out here on an Indiana farm. You believe a man would say that? I'll be honest with you, Brother Fred, I slid my chair over from him just in case lightning struck while he's talking. <laughs> but listen, he asked me to comment on it. And the program's getting ready to go off. They're getting ready to put the credits up. My wife Pansy's standing right over there off stage. I said, well, I'm glad you asked me. I said, listen, I can understand why you feel that way. But I just want to tell you, if you ever get washed in that blood, you ever get cleansed by that blood, You ever get a spiritual bath in God's triple detergent, the shed cleansing blood of Jesus Christ? You ever get saved by that blood? You won't ever feel that way again. Because I've never known anybody that got saved and born again that thought that the blood of Jesus was a bloody, gory religion. And the program's getting ready to go off. And I said, I want to leave you with this thought. And J. Edward can tell you this. This had to be God. This is a miracle. My family, I come from a family of musicians, but at the holidays when they get ready to sing around the piano, they beg me not to sing just to pantomime it because I put everybody off key. (laughs) But I said, I just want to leave you with this one thought before this program goes off. 
Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Sing it with me. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? The program went off, and my wife Fancy nearly fainted right over there off stage. I want to tell you something. They tell me my kind of preaching, my kind of ministry is obsolete, old-fashioned, and out of date. A man told me, who's supposed to be an expert the other day, 10 years from now, guys like me would be like dinosaurs, we'd be, we'd be extinct. But I won't tell you, if I get every door slammed in my face and I have to preach out on the street or on street corners where people stop at a red light, I will not compromise the blood, the book, or the blessings of God because of what Jesus did for you and me on Calvary's cross. The power of the cross. Would you bow with me, please, for prayer? Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to ask you a question. If I had time today, I'd go throughout this place and speak to every person personally. I'd give it the personal touch. I'd call your name. This is what I would ask you. Have you ever made the wonderful discovery of knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way? Or would you say you're still in the process? Did you know in 45, 46 years of asking that question, I've never had a person to answer me in a mean, rude, crude, or ugly way. Many have said, well, I don't know, or I'm not sure. Or I guess you could say, preacher, I'm still in the process. Well, praise the Lord, if you're still in the process, you've come to the right place with the right people at the right time. We can help you, my friend. I listened to Brother Fred preach on television early this morning. Had no idea I was going to do it. I was channel surfing and came across where he was talking about Jesus laying down his life for us. And my friend, I want you to understand today, I don't care where you've been, what you've done, what you haven't done, what is in your life, what's been in your life. Jesus laid down His life for you. And if you'd been the only person that needed Him to do it, He would have done it. And if you've never made that wonderful discovery, I can help you to do that right here, right now, right there where you see it. Because Romans 10, 13 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That means anybody, anywhere, anytime. That means you. And if you'll just bow your head, I'll lead you in a prayer. Now, you really don't need me. You could go directly to God. But I'm wanting to help you so much. I don't want there to ever be a question in your mind about it. And I'll lead you this first time that you ask Him. And you pray this prayer after me to Him. And if you pray it sincerely, seriously, from way down deep in your heart, I give you His Word. He'll hear it. He'll answer it. He'll do what we ask Him to do. It goes like this, and you pray it to Him. Dear Lord Jesus... I know that I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins in my place on the cross. I repent of my sins. I turn from my sins, and I will choose 
to turn my whole life over to Jesus Christ. Please come into my heart and forgive me and cleanse me and save me from all my sins and my past. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving me, for dying for me, and for saving me today. I trust you as my Savior, and I choose to follow you as Lord. In Jesus' Name I pray.